You go to the movies, what do they show you first? Well, I mean, there's the commercials. Isn't it great to have to pay that much and still watch commercials? I mean, they're not even real entertaining ones. You know, the ones that are, the old ones, let's all go to the lobby, let's all go to the lobby, drop another 50 bucks, yeah. No, they show you the coming attractions, don't they? Sometimes it's for movies that are coming out in the next couple weeks. Sometimes it's for ones that might be a year or two out. And even in the lobby, you'll see posters or other displays for big budget blockbusters. They might say things like, coming summer 2024 at Rocky 18 or whatever the next Marvel movie is going to be. Because it's not like they got enough imagination to come up with something new. Oh, look, superheroes chasing after some trinket again. That's never been done before. They make a big deal of it because they want you to be excited. They want you to be ready. And when it comes out, they want your money. Same thing happens when a company launches a big product. They'll have all kinds of advertisements and they'll give or maybe even just leak tidbits to get folks all worked up. It's the iWidget version 20. What's it do that's different? I don't know, but I need it. You know what's coming, so you'll be interested when it arrives. Well, before the Messiah came, he had been foretold. God wasn't trying to drum up hype. He was telling the people so that they would know him when they saw him. You see, at Jesus' birth, when the angels came to the, to the shepherds and said, The Messiah's been born. The shepherds didn't look back at the angels and say, Great, what's a Messiah? No, they knew. And Jesus, when he started his ministry, he didn't just sit down to teach in the synagogue and say, Well, you know, here's what a Messiah is. No, they had a clue. They know They understood that God was sending someone. They didn't fully understand the role, but they knew someone special was coming. God had been preparing his people ever since the fall of man in Eden. There had been promises of a coming Messiah. They knew the anointed one was coming. The one God had chosen was on the way. And all throughout Israel's history, God's been getting closer to this. He's been giving more information. He's been getting people ready and you know, drawing ever nearer to that time. And you know, there's Abraham, and he says, hey, the Messiah is going to come from your lineage. And he's the father of the Jewish people. And then we fast forward to the time of David. Under David, Israel's been amazingly successful. They've achieved peace from those who are around them. It was a rare time of security for the Jews. They could have a breather. They're in their own land. They're no longer being attacked. In fact, their neighbors really, really want to be their friends now. And King David wants to do something to show his appreciation for God. And God has an answer for him. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 17. I know. Chronicles? That's a Christmas passage? Well, work. Wait, just hold on a second. Work with me. You're going to see it. Because in this kind of back and forth that David has with God, we learn a little more about the Messiah. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to David. 
Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling, in all places where I've moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I shall establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, David spoke, or Nathan spoke to David. David's got a proposal for God. God, I'm going to build you this temple. It's going to be great. And God's answer to that gives a solid promise of the coming Messiah. The promised one is still coming. Says to David, hey, the Messiah's on his way. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. This, we start getting a little more detail here. You see, this chapter opens with Israel. They're at the height of their power. The struggles with the surrounding nations have been won. You don't see any more battles with the Philistines. The Midianites have exited stage left from history. David has gone from being the youngest son of a shepherd to a decorated hero to becoming a, a king. Those are some steps up. Where once he was the least of his brothers. You know, in any family, the youngest had the least prestige. He was the one who got all the dirty jobs around the house. But he'd gone from that to being the people about whom they would... The, to being the person about whom the people would sing. I mean, they made songs about how many Philistines David had killed. You're like, man, that's a little weird. Hey, it was a different time. And now he's king. The Ark of the Covenant has been recovered. It's been restored to its rightful place in the tabernacle. You see, the Ark of the Covenant, many years before, the Israelites had taken it out, thinking that it was really more of a good luck charm. They thought that if they, if they had the Ark of the Covenant, they'd win in battle. And they lost. Well, the Israelites eventually got, got the Ark back, and they were kind of afraid to do anything with it. Well, now it's back in its rightful spot. 
And David, he's just overwhelmed with gratitude because God has been faithful in all of his promises to David. God has, there's been this back and forth ever since David was walking, watching over the sheep and God knew this was the one and God has been good to him. And David has come through some dark times. He fought the Philistines. He was pursued by King Saul. You read over some of the Psalms that David wrote. I mean, death was ever his companion and I don't mean as a friend. He was good in a fight, but in everything he did, one little slip up, he would have been killed. And now, here he is. It's a time of peace and prosperity like the nation had never known before. The nation would become a little bit more prosperous under his son Solomon, said that silver would be like nothing in the days of Solomon. I mean, they were that wealthy. It was a good time. But when people think of the glory days of of Israel, they think of King David. Because everybody loves a winner. And David was a winner. He's thinking things can't possibly get any better than this. But I imagine that even as he celebrated the Ark of the Covenant coming into the tabernacle, its rightful place, and David saw that tent as he went to worship there and he thought wait you know something's a little wrong here he goes back to his palace and he's man i'm living in this house of cedar you know usually when we think of uh dwelling places in the middle east we think of you know mud or rocks or clay or that sort of thing well remember the nation of lebanon on their modern day flag has a cedar tree When they were building stuff, they would import cedar from the north. Folks, that must have been an impressive place to be, to walk into his palace and smell that wood. It would have been neat. And here's David in this unimaginable luxury, luxury he couldn't have even envisioned when he was young. And he looks over and he sees the tabernacle. You know, God is in a tent, essentially. We got to fix this. This isn't fit for the Lord of all creation. God's done so much for David. Now David wants to do something for God. He he calls in the court prophet, Nathan. Nathan, I got an idea. I'm going to build God a temple. And Nathan's thinking, well, I can't imagine why God would have a problem with this. Sounds good. Go for it. He doesn't check. Go right ahead. And that night, God gives some marching orders to the prophet. No, you go tell the king this, buddy. So it turns out Nathan was a bit hasty. God's response begins with, who asked for a temple? If it mattered that much, Would the tabernacle have even existed? Wouldn't God have just said, you know, I want a good permanent place to be. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be the first thing you do in the promised land. So you just take this stuff and all the wealth, and when you walk into the promised land, you get to building. That's not what he said. In fact, the second half of Exodus is almost entirely directions on how to build the tabernacle. And that temple is not on his list of priorities. 
Never in the book of Judges did God say, well, shouldn't there be a nicer church? I want a crystal cathedral. Fountains. And God kind of refers to himself here in an anthropomorphic way. He talks about dwelling in a tent. And you want to be careful with this because we can misunderstand there's no such thing as a structure that can contain the God of all creation. Yes, God talks about himself as inhabiting the, t- the, the tabernacle, the tent. But that's not really where all of God is. Later on, there's even visions in Ezekiel of God leaving the temple and so on and so forth. And, and even when they first build the temple in Solomon's day, the glory of God comes in. But you know how much of God that is? Probably so little it doesn't even rate. I mean, are we going to live in a dollhouse? Ladies, how many of you wanted the Barbie dream house way back in the day? Oh, didn't exist? You didn't have the Barbie dream house, no. Needed better dreams back in the 60s, did you? Yeah. Yeah. The Barbie dream tent with camel. You couldn't live in it. Best dollhouse in the world is nothing more than just a plaything. Folks, God doesn't live in these buildings. Never has, never will. Is his spirit present? I believe so. But is that the entirety of God? Oh, don't make me laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Now, God did lay down requirements for the tabernacle to serve as an instruction for the people. That second half of Exodus, it gets pretty specific because God wants people to learn from this. He's got messages for them. He said, when you set this up, when you walk into the courtyard, you've got the altar because you can't come to God without a sacrifice. And then you come to the bronze lava, this big basin for washing because we have to cleanse ourselves. And you come in to the holy place, and there in the holy place, you have along the right wall a table with showbread, that's unleavened bread, to stand for the bread of the Passover. On the left wall, you've got the candelabra, giving light, and right in front of you, right in front of the curtain into the most holy place, you've got the altar of incense. Folks, this meant something. You don't come to God without passing by the sacrifice of Christ and by washing yourself clean in the, in the waters of baptism. And then once you're in, you're into the holy place. And there we remember the Lord Jesus with unleavened bread, with the light that is given by his word. And it says in many places in the Bible that the, the, the smell of God's, the prayers of God's people come up to God is like a, a, a pleasing smell before his presence. The reason God gave those directions wasn't because there was anything magical about that layout. It's not because there's anything super special, excepting that he's teaching us something about coming to him. There's lessons in the layout, but no magic. And even today, God can be worshipped in any building or none at all. 
Walls don't contain him. God doesn't need the shelter of any roof. I mean, it's nice to not get rained on. It's good to have heating and cooling. But this structure is nothing more than an aid to his people. It's not for his benefit, it's for ours. And folks, if this structure we meet in, if this, if this place ceased to be tomorrow, we'd still be worshiping God on Sunday. I'm not sure where. It might even be in the parking lot. But our worship would be no different and no less important. You see, God's not bound up about the building. That's what he's saying through Nathan to David. He's saying, you know, look, you want to build this for me. I never asked for it. It doesn't matter. This desire of David's, it wasn't in response to a command. Instead, it was a response to what God had done for him. It was an act of gratitude, an act of worship. And it's not that that's, that was misplaced. He just wants David to understand before anything happens for this temple, what's really important. It ain't the building. It's what happens there. And as God, know, God talks to this prophet, to Nathan, to pass this message along, he, he knows what he's done for this lowly shepherd. Verse 7 and 8 is kind of a quick recap. But he says, I'm not done, David. I've done this for you. You've gone from being just some nobody to being the dude in Israel. But I'm not done with you yet. He says, I'm going to establish your kingdom in a permanent fashion. Oh, you're going to have a dynasty, dude. But you know what? The lineage of kings comes and goes. There was a time when their members of that family were not royalty. There will come a time when they are not royalty again. He says, yeah, there's going to be a temple. David, you're not building it. Solomon's going to build it. But as he says, there's going, you know, this son of yours is going to build a house for me. He ain't talking about the temple. We can be real. If we're not careful, we'll think that God's talking about Solomon here. Your son that will come after you, I'll establish that throne. He'll build me a house. We think, oh, Solomon, he's king after David. He built a house. No, nope. incorrect. Survey says, eh. There's one, about There's one of David's descendants to come about whom this isn't just technically true, it is completely true. Friends, this passage is about the Messiah to come. He's going to come from the lineage of David. The house that is built, oh, Jesus built a house. I don't mean as a carpenter. Friends, the church is the house of God, not the church building. I mean the church. The people of God combined together are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians, that bit about, you know, you are a temple, your body is a temple, we read that and we're like, oh, my body is a temple. Folks, that had nothing to do with your flesh and blood. That bag of skin you got, he ain't talking about it. The you there is plural. When he says you, your body, he's not talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about the body of the community of Christ. 
those who serve him at Christview Christian Church, Harvester Christian Church, La Iglesia del Sur in Monterrey, Mexico. All throughout the world, friends, we are the body and the house of God. And more of God dwells in us than ever dwelt in any building. His spirit in us. Friends, walls don't contain him. But his spirit is in his people. Oh, there's going to be a house built. And it's going to be bigger than any walls. It's going to last longer than any structure. After all, who's going to come after Jesus? At what point does Jesus' reign end? It won't. Kings and queens come and go. They don't live forever. They're temporary. They get old, they get wrinkled, they get replaced. But the Son of God, they killed him and he lives again. He sits on that throne even today. Jesus is the very Son of God. No metaphorical Son of God about it. I mean, He is the Son of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords now and forever. The Son of David that Nathan is hearing about, that he's going to tell David about, is not Solomon. It's not Absalom. It's not any other of David's physical children. It is coming in the future. There will be a descendant named Yeshua. We call his name Jesus. And he is completely and totally the Son of God. This is what's going to unfold in the Gospels. This is what we see happening from here on out in the Scriptures. God deliberately fulfills all of this in detail. This is why Matthew and Luke list the genealogies of Christ, both of them tracing Jesus' earthly lineage back to King David. If you read them, you might say, well, they're a little different. Bible scholars think that one of them is talking about his kind of official legal lineage running through Joseph. The other, his actual human genetic makeup going through Mary. Both of them tracing it back to the King David. See, King David, as the years went by, he had a lot of descendants. You know, that, that, that just kind of happens. Any of you ever do genealogical research? You know, you, eventually you're going to start finding royalty. I mean, there, there are certain things you find in genealogical research. One is having children's hereditary. If your parents didn't have any, you won't. But one of the other things is kings tend to spread it around far and wide. My sister did a lot of this stuff, and, you know, we start finding, okay, uh, this Irish king apparently had a lot of kids. We go back to him, and so does a lot of other Irish folks. Even read a statistic once. It's a significant number of people out of European heritage, like at least 20%, can follow some blood lineage back to Genghis Khan. He's got a lot of descendants. So did David. Not quite as many, but still. But that still means Jesus was an heir to the throne of David. He fulfilled this in every detail. 
Friends, Jesus coming to earth, it was not some coincidence. It wasn't some revisionist history that followers later forced the stories about Jesus to fit. He was foretold long in advance and God guided human history to bring him about. You ever think about how much work that took? For God to guide human history, the rise and fall of empires, both great humans and common ones, just to get to the point where he's ready for Jesus to come. Sometimes we, we start looking at a task and we're like, man, it ain't worth this. Any of you start doing your Christmas shopping, you go to the store and you're like, uh-uh, forget this, this is a mess, I'm just going to order it on Amazon. And you, yeah, a couple of nods. Yeah, I tell you, it's glorious not having to fight the crowds now, isn't it? Sometimes we'll just draw the line and say, that's enough. No, God kept working because it was important. And what was important wasn't just bringing about his son. It was bringing about his son so his son could accomplish the redemption of humanity. The most important thing ever accomplished. You know, sometimes we talk about the things that meant a lot to us in life, and sad to say, sometimes they didn't matter much. He was the world record holder for eating pickles while he stood on his head. I don't know if there's a world record holder for that. There probably is. Guinness Book of World Records has all sorts of weird stuff in it. Does it matter? Those names in a book. But no. And there's so many things we can do in life that we can say, well, this is a big deal. And we can say, but it does it really matter? Probably not. Friends, that which matters is that which is eternal. Friends, Jesus came. God did all this not to conquer land, but to conquer sin and death. That's why we celebrate. That's why we remember. That's why this time of year is a big deal for us. Because this promised Messiah, he is our Redeemer. He is the Son of God. He is our Lord. And when we believe in him, when we serve him, when we receive redemption, we are forgiven. We look forward to an eternity with God. Friends, everything changes. All this comes about so we can serve the promised Messiah. He told us he was coming so we would know him, so we would serve him. God foretold Jesus, gave him power, strength, and authority, even bringing him back from the grave to show how we can live forever. To show, friends, the hold of death has been broken. Yeah, we never like to talk about death. We know what waits for us. We see our loved ones succumb to it one by one. But friends, because of Jesus, death is temporary. The biggest opponent humans ever face has lost. 
And when we serve the promised Messiah, friends, we win. Believe in him. Follow him. Friends, we will live with him. Stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for you have redeemed us. You have forgiven us of our sin in your son Jesus. And you have given us hope of eternity there with you. Lord, we pray that we would follow him. That we recognize what you have done. That we would see that your son is the Messiah. That he is the one who died for us. He is the one who lives again. And when we believe, Lord, we will live forever too. Draw us to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.